0: And I'm joined today by Connie Walker. She was, uh, she is an award-winning investigative journalist. She was the host of the podcast "Missing and Murdered," and she is also the host of a newer podcast called "Stolen." Connie, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, so, where are you at? Are you in? I know you're you're Canadian. Uh, are you Are Toronto. you in Canada?
1: Yeah, I'm in Toronto. It's I, rainy here today.
0: It's been it's been rainy. Yeah, I've. They they predicted rain for us for like two weeks straight, and so I didn't turn my sprinkler system on, and then my lawn completely died, and then I turned my sprinkler system on, and now it's raining, because it's been raining for three days ever since.
1: <laughs> That's the way it goes.
0: Yep. So uh, before we get into your podcast, tell me about your, a little bit about yourself. So you, you don't work anymore, but you used to work for the CBC?
1: Yeah, I worked at the CBC for almost 20 years, or for about 20 years, yeah. I was there for a long time. I, I got that job right out of... Uh, I was an intern and then I basically just never left. Um until I did leave in right. 2019 to join
0: Gimlet. <laughs> gotcha. So um one of my all-time favorite podcasts is a CBC podcast, uh, Someone Knows Something with David Ridgeon. David, yes. Yeah, you you do I take it you know David?
1: Yes, I know David. David and I worked together like years before we did podcasts on a TV show called CBC News Sunday, and it was like a, a news and current affairs style show and David was a vj a video journalist and I was a reporter producer and we actually only did we only kind of did one story together but I've known David for a really long time he's he's great
0: oh yeah I loved that I've always loved his show that I got to meet him once at crime con and then I and then I interviewed him for true crime binge uh gosh it's been a year and a half ago now but yeah he's one of he's one of my heroes in the in the true crime podcasting space he's he's just an amazing guy for sure um so what else did you do for CB uh CBC?
1: I did everything for CBC honestly like I worked there for so long I got to do so many different kinds of things. I started out as an intern. Um my next job right after my internship was hosting a national youth television show. Um and then after I did that I kind of realized that I needed to to learn how to be a journalist. So I went back and I was an associate producer and then a uh reporter and then a producer and I worked in News, current affairs, investigative, documentary. I even did a life. I hosted a lifestyle show for about six months at CBC went. So I, I did. You've done
0: literally done it all for them.
1: <laughs> I, it was, I feel I love CBC for, for, for so many reasons, but I, I liked working at CBC because it really felt like there were opportunities to do lots of different kinds of things. And that there were also like just, you know, a lot of really creative, talented people who also, we're really caring about the work that we're doing and the journalism we're doing. So, I, it was it was great for me. And and then when I actually started working on podcasting, you know, I had the first podcast. I you know I I was new to audio. I'd never done a. I was a TV reporter mm-hmm. who went out on a TV story, and I was like, I think this could be a podcast. And I actually met with David. I came back to see. Oh, yeah? I was Like, <laughs> does this sound like a podcast to you? I don't know. Um and uh, and and that, but then I really kind of fell in love with podcasting and I, I, realized that especially for the kind of stories that I'm interested in doing and the kind of things that I like to do, um, there really, it really is the best, the yeah. best medium.
0: Yeah. I found, uh, so I've gone the other, I went from podcasting to doing some TV work and hate it and love coming back to podcasts, but it seems like the other, the idea of not having time restrictions and such like tight parameters on everything Is It makes it so, I think, especially in the true crime space, it makes it so much easier, not easier is not the right word, but it's better to tell the kinds of stories that we're telling, especially like long form stuff like you're doing.
1: Yeah, it is. Although I, you know, I really do find, I feel that like my experience in news and the training I'm kind of had doing news has really helped me in podcasting as well. You know, like I feel right. you know, having to just, you know, I was a local news reporter for a long time. So I was just doing a news story every day for um, a while. And I just feel like that kind of just trains you to, um, to talk to lots of different kinds of people to do lots of different kinds of stories, but also just the, you know, every day filing a story is mm-hmm. such a helpful thing when it comes to even, you know, now doing, um, you know, 30 or 40 minute episodes of, of like a narrative podcast. It's yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, but I also, it would be hard to imagine going back. I, I would say
0: that. Yeah, it's uh, the, my thing is just so coming the other way was just doing the pie and I didn't have any background in it. So it's like I'm seven years in still trying to learn all those skills that uh, that you <laughs> that you've brought into the podcast casting space with you. Um, but it was always just like I've got whatever this week's topic is. I can dig in and research and allow, and if it takes 22 minutes, that's okay. And if it takes an hour and 22 minutes, that's okay. And then when I went to do like my documentary, it was like, nope, we have six minute segments and this is when the ad breaks are. And it's just a whole different, different medium. It's a, it was tough for me to learn. I didn't enjoy it. As you can tell very much much at all. (laughs) It's actually why I was a minute late. I was talking to my producers about some, um, some updates in the case. we worked on that. Um, And they're, they're wanting to do some more like follow up on it. I'm just like, uh, can I just talk about it? Do we need to do it on TV again? (laughs) Uh, I know it's true. So I I take it you went to, you went to school to be a journalist. Was that what you always wanted to do?
1: Not really. Like, I mean. I think I was always interested in journalism, but really when I started university, I was studying arts. Like I was actually studying psychology and um, I didn't, for for whatever reason, I just didn't think like, um, I I really didn't think I was going to get into the journalism school. So I was like, I could, I'll do art. Like I I was also interested in psychology. And then at one point um, I got connected with one of the communication programs that was, that I could take alongside my arts degree and that was kind of um, my way into journalism and storytelling, and and then I, that's how I got my internship at CBC. Um, but but yeah, no, I I think that I was always interested in in journalism. Though in high school, like one of the first stories um, that I did for the for the school paper was about an Indigenous woman um, who who had been killed in Saskatchewan, and. Um, I remember writing something for the paper. Her name was Pamela George and I didn't know her, but you know um, when she, when she was killed, there were two white university students who were on trial for her murder. And it was a really high profile case in the province at the time. And, and I was paying attention even though I wasn't, I don't think I was a kid who paid much attention to the news back then, honestly, like, Uh but I was paying attention. Um, And, and it was, you know, I remember feeling um, so upset by the way that she was talked about in the media and how um, so much of the focus was on the two white university students who were charged in her death. You know, they they were um, one was called a basketball star. The other was a, a hockey standout and they came from like middle class families. And mm-hmm. One of their dads worked at the university and like and Pamela was called like a, a prostitute and, and we didn't know anything about her life. She was a young mom to two kids. And I just remember feeling so upset about the way that, you know, she was further dehumanized in the media uh, in this, in this trial of the two men who, who were charged with her death. And they ended up being acquitted of murder and convicted of manslaughter. And I think that for a young, like I was a young indigenous woman growing up in Saskatchewan, you know i feel like that was such a, a a chilling um case to see like what what happened to or what didn't happen to them you mm-hmm. know they 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 it's a really kind of terrible um terrible case in so many ways but you know like they admitted to picking her up and and taking her outside of the city and they admitted to beating her and leaving her there and they were acquitted in her murder you know and and i felt like it spoke to how, not just how that jury and, and judge um viewed pamela's life but about how broader society the, the media coverage how broader society viewed all of our lives as indigenous women and and that was the first time i wrote something for the school paper and thought about becoming a journalist but but i really i also really felt like it wasn't a space for me i remember thinking like are there any native journalists like who are covering this trial or working at any mm-hmm. of the papers? and um there were few and far between for sure back then
0: That's cool that you got your start there because that's been a big focus of your work since then now and mm-hmm. it, you mentioned a couple times that you're an indigenous woman yourself you're uh, you're uh, um you're part of the the Cree nation is that right
1: Yeah I'm Cree
0: Okay um yeah and and so you've you've made a big through cuz the the missing and murdered podcast focused on missing and murdered indigenous women, um, and stolen, um, your first season of stolen did the same. Uh, so yeah. it, it's, 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 great that you've, you've continued on that work. Um, it took
1: a long time though. Like that was, so that the thing I wrote in, in high school, like I graduated in 97. So that would have been like the mid, mid, I think it was grade 11, maybe 96. Uh-huh. And then, and then, you know, it was, it was like around 15 years at CBC, before I was able to, to, to do that kind of coverage. And, and I think that for just the reality was for a long time, there was just very, I think it's still true now, you know, like there's, there's um, an attitude, I think in newsrooms and in journalism, that these stories are, are not as important or that people don't care about them or that they don't deserve our attention. Like I, the first MMIW story I pitched was back in 2006. And I, I, I remember it because I was working on that show with David Ridgen Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I heard about a a girl who I knew from back home who had gone missing. And it was before social media, it was before um, Facebook or Twitter. And her family had sent out an email chain asking people to forward it. You remember that? Oh yeah. In the 2000s, you're like, please forward this email, please forward this email chain. And it was, it was because they were trying to get a, get attention um, because um, Amber had disappeared. And uh, so I was working in this national newsroom in tr- downtown Toronto, and she went missing near where I grew up in, in small town, Saskatchewan. And her case barely got any local coverage. And I remember that same summer, another woman went missing in Toronto and her name was Alicia Ross. And she was uh, like, they, there were so many similarities. I, I felt between Amber's disappearance and Alicia's disappearance. Cause they were both these, Young women who kind of just seemed to disappear um, without a trace and their families were so desperate for information. But Alicia, who went missing um, just north of Toronto in Markham, um, her case was covered on the national newscast and like her paper was on the front of the national newspapers here in Canada And she was blonde and white and Amber was a young indigenous woman in Saskatchewan. And I remember going in and wanting to do a story about the media coverage of these two different cases and kind of examining why they were so different. And the, the executive producer at the time just had no interest. You know, I, I went into pitch and she, she held up her hand to me and she was like, this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? You know? And, And that was the attitude I think for a really long time, unfortunately. And I think it's, something that we're
0: struggling with for sure. And it, it seems to me that there's more of a light being shined on missing and murdered indigenous women literally in the last six months to a year. Do you think mm-hmm. so? The, the Gabby Petito case was, which is obviously another, you know, blonde hair, yeah. white girl, um, yeah. who went missing. Do you think that that case actually helped bring more attention? Cause at first there was, there was like outrage that, Mm-hmm. Um, because, not that her case didn't deserve attention, but we've talked about it with several guests on this show, that it was like, okay, why is this one white girl getting all this national attention when there's all these from the same area missing and murdered indigenous women that nobody's talking about? So it if, if first came outrage, but it seems, it seems to me that because of that outrage, it, it seems to have brought some attention. And at, at least from where I'm at, I'm hearing more and more about these cases and people working on them now, would you agree with that? Or do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, I I remember, I, I I think like, I remember um, when Gabby first went missing and I remember just feeling so terrible because again, there were so many similarities I felt between her and Jermaine Charlotte, like the first season of, of stolen is about the disappearance of a young Indigenous woman named Jermaine Charlotte And she um, was a mother of two, and she she went missing from downtown Missoula. And our first season is like a deep dive into her unsolved case and really trying to help people get to know Jermaine through her family that remembers her and misses her and loves her and is desperate to find her still. Um, but also helping to kind of shine a light on these broader systemic issues that that make Indigenous women more likely to be victims of violence, and and Jermaine, like when when Gabby went missing, I remember like you know I think that a big part of Gabby's disappearance and the reason that it got so much attention was because of how active she was on social media and mm-hmm. how like present she was on that. And Jermaine was the same way. Jermaine was so Jermaine was on TikTok. She made these videos. That was actually one of the reasons that her family was you know was concerned about her right away it was because like oh she hasn't posted anything and we can't get a hold of her like this is so unlike Jermaine. and i remember thinking about like how that social media attention then kind of turned into this like online support around gabby's disappearance which then translated into media attention mm-hmm. which then translated into police um investigation like this you know the attention around her case like there was coordination across state lines from multiple police forces who were looking for Gabby and, and working on this investigation. And 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 it happened like so fast. It was like within days and, and within you know of her disappearance, there was this like coordinated support. And with Jermaine, like she went missing and her family was immediately worried because she was absent on social media. And they were also dealing with different police jurisdictions because, like so many tribal communities, they have this kind of patchwork of law enforcement that has jurisdiction over, over their territories. So she was from the um, you know, the reserve, and there were like five counties that are, you know, around that police are sometimes called, depending on where you are in the reserve, and there's tribal police, and she went missing in Missoula. So they were dealing with the Missoula City police and and they couldn't coordinate with each other. Like her Mm -hmm. family had to go try to get, like it was a struggle to even get her reported as missing. And just seeing like the resources that came out of the Gabby Petito case, it just broke my heart thinking about if Jermaine had 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 that kind of coordinated response and that kind of attention, like just what a difference that would have made in her case. and, And maybe likely probably- you know, her family wouldn't be here like four years after her disappearance, still wondering where she is, still searching for her, still going out on searches in the mountains in their community to try to find her. And it's just it's true that it, I think it has raised attention. But I always think about the, the you know, the families that didn't get that, the families that didn't get that attention. And there's still so many out there who who need it.
0: Yeah. And Jermaine's case. So that was that, that that's see the, the case that um, Connie's talking about here is season one of stolen. Um, and you guys like joined into that investigation. Do you, do you feel like you, you were able to at least move the ball forward in the investigation and, and shine a better light on the case from the work you did?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think that we were absolutely like able to shine, trying to spotlight on it and, and you know, a lot of, a lot of our investigation, obviously, like centered around Jermaine's family and like what, what they knew and what they were were told. But a big part of it was also like one of our, our biggest sources was detective Guy Baker, who was the lead investigator in Jermaine's disappearance. And so, you know, he's someone that, that is really, um, out, out front in Jermaine's case and, and really, you know, has, He showed us the binders that he has, Mm -hmm. but show all the work he's done on the case. But I think what our, what our investigation did was also kind of point out some of those, some of those failures of of the investigation and some of the, the challenges that the police forces faced as a result of her disappearance. And, and I, I mean, I think that, you know, I think for her family, I know that it was important that to tell Tremaine's story that they have been like pushing pushing that for a long time on their own, trying to get attention, trying to get pressure. Um, but I, I still think that at the end of the day, they just want to find Jermaine and bring her home. And it's just so frustrating that, that, that she's still missing and that they haven't been able to do that.
0: Are you still in contact with the family after the, after the series aired?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, well, it's something that just, you know, I'm, I'm still in contact with, Um, Cleo's family too and Alberta Williams family the first like the first season of Missing and Murdered was about Alberta Williams family and I just talked to her sister Claudia a few weeks ago and like you know I think that when you do these kind of in-depth investigations you you get to know people really well right and you Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time um, with them but also like like what, I, what was so interesting to me, especially about Jermaine's case, was that, you know, I remember going and talking to her grandmother, her yaya, Vicky, and then talking to her aunts, Belinda and Danny, and, like, and realizing, like, we're in such a unique position as, as journalists to go in, because it's our job to ask these questions and to, like, right. sit down and, like, ask as many questions as we can. We did, like, multiple interviews that were hours long. And, and then in those interviews, you're like, oh, wow, you know, we're, I'm talking about things that I don't know that they have talked about really, even with each other yet. Like, because they're dealing with also so many, like they're dealing with their daily lives, they're dealing with their families, but also like they're, they're approaching things from a grieving family point of view. And so they're not necessarily, um, in, you know, having the same conversations. And so it's a really like unique position to be in, I think as a journalist who comes in and and then, and then is, is so involved with families. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. Like Jermaine's family, I'm I'm thinking about them, especially like this month, it's, 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 you know, they're coming up on another anniversary of Jermaine's disappearance. And Mm -hmm. I know that's always a really difficult, difficult time.
0: Right. Well, let's move on to talk about our case today, which is the case, um, the subject of season two of Stolen, which just started. As of now, I think there are what? There's five episodes out uh for season two. Today,
1: episode five is out.
0: Yeah. And th- maybe
1: I shouldn't give the timestamp, but yeah.
0: Yeah. So maybe when you're listening to this, maybe six and seven are out too. It depends when this when this airs. Do you know how many episodes are gonna be in this season?
1: At least eight.
0: At least eight. Okay, so um, so you'll have some something to binge on, listeners, when you when you when you listen to this, when this airs. Um, but you have a very personal connection with season two of stolen and it's, and it's, I started listening to it and it's, it's, really interesting. It's not what I was expecting at all. Um, so you did talk, so, you know, the, the case is, um, you know, the Howard Cameron is how it's, how it's listed to me, to me, but it's the survivors and the, and the abuse that took place at the St. Michael's, um, St. Michael school, uh, up where your father was from um but but go ahead and b- break down so Howard Cameron is actually your dad
1: He's my dad yeah Yeah He's my dad
0: Um and 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 share cuz I I don't want to give away too much I'll let you decide what to give <laughs> away to the audience about the about the case before they listen
1: Um yeah no so so it was about a year ago actually um that I was just scrolling through Facebook one day and I came across a post that my brother had written about our dad Howard Cameron and it was um it was about um, a story that my dad had shared with my brother about a time when he was a police officer, and he was stationed in in rural Saskatchewan, which is pretty remote, you mm-hmm. know, in in the Canadian prairies. And in the 1970s, he was working as a part as a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and he was out on patrol one night. So he saw a vehicle swerving on the um, on the highway, and he pulled it over because he suspected the driver was drinking. And when he got up to the driver's side window, he recognized the driver as a priest who had abused him when he was a boy at a residential school. And I don't know how much your audience knows about residential schools, but they they had they were they had similar things in the United States that were called boarding schools in the U.S. and residential schools in Canada. But there were these um, schools that were set up to. Uh, basically assimilate Indigenous kids. So they they were created by the federal government um, and often run by churches in Canada. They started, some of the first residential schools opened up in like the late 1800s. And they were open for about 100 years in Canada. And Indigenous children went to these schools. And the goal was to assimilate them. You know, my dad went to the school when he was six years old, starting in 1961. He spoke Cree you know he didn't speak any English he Mm -hmm. went to this school um and kids were you know they lived at these schools for for the, the entire school year some of some of them were allowed to go home at Christmas or some in summer vacations sometimes kids didn't um but there was a lot of terrible abuse um that happened at this these schools like they were called schools but really the the goal was kind of forced assimilation and and so when I read this story about a year ago that my dad had beat up this priest cuz that's what happened he he recognized this priest on the side of the road and then he beat him up on the side mm-hmm. of the road and um and then he went on to tell my brother this story and and when my brother shared the story on Facebook it was kind of the first time that I realized like what my dad's experience had been mm-hmm. at that school I didn't know about that before and and it really I mean, it, it's very like, it's a very personal podcast, you know, I talk a lot about my relationship with my dad and um, and how hearing that story really helped me understand him in a way that I never had before and made me want to learn um, more about his experience at that school, but also made me want to try to find the priest that he pulled over and the priest who, who abused him. And, and that's basically the, the start of this podcast, which is the second season of Stolen.
0: Yeah, and then now I know you've you've speak with over 30 survivors of the abuse at St. Michael's throughout the the course of the podcast. Um do you start looking into other cases? Is it really focused around this one priest and your dad, or do you are you investigating no, really, everything that went on there?
1: Yeah, it it really like this this is such um I feel like it's such a unique the like case for us to take on, obviously, not just because it's personal and it's about my dad, but it really it starts out being like really focused on on my dad and his experience at the school and trying to find the priests who abused him. But the more like the more we get into it, the the kind of deeper we we get into this school. Um, and my dad passed away like in twenty thirteen. So when I decided to start looking into his school, the school you know, I, I obviously couldn't talk to him about his experience, but he was one of 15 kids in his family to go to that school. Mm -hmm. So I started interviewing his brothers and sisters because they all went there. They all went to the school. Most of them went when they were six years old, just like my dad, they Mm -hmm. had very similar experiences. And it wasn't long before I started hearing stories about other priests who were abusive at the school, about priests who were abusive at school, you know, and, and, and getting people's names. And, and so I really kind of, you know, it's like that old story that you, you're just, you know, you're just unwinding the yarn, you know, you're just going with it and you don't know where it's going to go. Um, and this, this podcast, like really kind of builds and builds in a way. And, you know, I don't know, but like, we're still working on the episodes as they're rolling out. So like, um, like I'll tell you guys, but like, we just like episode five came out today and like, we just finished it last night, basically. Uh Um, episode, because,
0: I'm so happy like, to hear that. You? That's my world. That's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on this Friday's episode. It's Tuesday.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. It's like, I mean, it's obviously it's intense, but I think it also helps illustrate like just how, you know, we're still digging, we're still reporting, we're still investigating the school um, and, and it definitely does expand. And what we end up trying to do is really try to get a sense of um just how widespread the abuse was at this school. So like in one of my very first conversations with one of my dad's brothers, um, they tell me about, about another person in our family um, who was also sexually abused by a priest. And he, and they tell me the name uh, of this priest that my uncle Ivan accused of sexual abuse. And then we start investigating this priest um, and we find out he's still alive. And we start talking to other survivors and hearing more allegations against him. And and then we like, I don't know how far you've gotten, Bob, but um I don't want to give you any spoilers. But it basically like it it becomes, you know, a much bigger investigation. And we end up wanting to try to find out just just how widespread the abuse was at school, how many people were abusing children there. And what we uncover is really kind of, I mean It's disturbing and staggering. And I don't even say that as a family member, like who had people in my family go to the school and experience this abuse directly, but just as a journalist, like that, you know, this is kind of, it's kind of shocking to say, I think that in 2022, like that this is the first time there's been this kind of investigation into St. Michael's and into a residential school like this in Canada. But this is what this is, you know, this is where we're at. Like it's so, there's also this urgency. It's so important to hear these stories mm-hmm. now because survivors are, you know, they're getting old, and and this truth is going to be lost if we don't ask the questions and 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 tell these stories now.
0: Yeah, I'm loving it so far. It has that real, like, real time feel that you're you're kind of going through the process with you as you're you're digging through it. Um, and I and I do think it's it's super important for these stories to come out because you know there are people being abused children being abused right now as we speak that are going through the same thing. And I think the more and more uh, we can normalize coming forward and, and, and and telling their stories the you know, the better chance we have of, of putting an end to that. Have you gotten any kind of pushback from the church or, or anything?
1: Yeah, we've been in touch with, so the, the, um, the school that my dad went to was run by this Catholic order of priests called the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And they're obviously like a, an order of male priests um, mm-hmm. that originated in France and they ran, um, they ran 48 residential schools in Canada. And so we have been in touch with them to tell them about our investigation and to ask them questions and to, um, uh, you know, to try to get information, you know, because they ran this school for over, well, for about 80 years. Um, and, and so it was like generations of, of children, obviously who went to the school. My dad was the third generation in his family to mm-hmm. go Um, And they ran this, like the, these priests ran the school the entire time. And because they were, um, you know, essentially hired by the federal government to run this school, to open the school and to run this school, they had to report back to the federal government. So they kept like, you know, a lot of records from the school, like mm-hmm. attendance records. I went back and I found like my dad's admission form, his, both of his parents were at the school. I found their attendance reports, their parents, like some my great grandparents. Um, my great grandfather was one of the actually first students of the school, like in the early 1900s. Um, and so, yeah, we've been, we've been talking to the Oblates. Um, you know, I, I think that like, you um, the you know the first email with them you know the, the the provincial superiors of the head of the oblates in canada thanked me for my investigation and ex- apologized you know to families who experienced abuse at residential schools and 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 kind of reiterated their commitment to reconciliation which is a really um you know like this it's 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 a different tone than than we're reading uh, about um, sure uh, you know, because the, the, when survivors first started coming forward and telling stories about the, the abuse they experienced in residential schools, you know, this is happening in like the 90s. It really kind of started happening in the 90s. And they mm-hmm. started suing the federal government and the churches, including the Oblates, for, for the abuse they experienced in the schools. And back then, like we found some of those original lawsuits that survivors were filing. And you know back then the Oblates were, were saying like um they deny any applications of abuse they deny um, being responsible for the care of children in these schools they deny um you know uh, employing this one priest in particular that we were asking about mm-hmm. and they deny having any authority over him like it's 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 been you know it, it's and they said that even if the abuse was found to have occurred even if it's proven to to be true which um these lawsuits a lot of them actually never even went you know uh went forward um that that it was actually the responsibility of the Canadian government not the oblate's you know who ran the school so it's been a real journey of like trying to it's, it feels like it's a real time investigation into like very recent history but also like you know Kind of really like, I, it, it's helped me realize like how much of of what we know or what we think we know about things uh, about our history are, are really written by the people who have the power at the time. And and I feel like so much of my work, not just in this season of of stolen, has been about trying to correct the record and trying to give Indigenous people the agency and voice and, and space to kind of correct the record and to to share. You know our version of this of this shared history, which has been what is underreported, ignored.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd say more closer to ignored. Well, I think it's great that you're doing it. You're doing a fantastic job, and have been. I mean, you you you're you're a pro. It's obvious all the way from I've heard some I mean, of you're missing and murdered and stolen. Um, in, in this story, I, I'm I'm very excited to see how this how this ends up playing out as it moves along. Her name is Connie Walker, and the podcast is called Stolen. They are, as of now, five episodes into season two. By the time you hear this, you may be able to binge the entire season. So check it out. could be your next big true crime binge. Connie, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.